the world needs poetry because the world needs anything that allows us to pause for a moment and take in feeling, sensation, sit in language, twirl around an idea, just simply pause and let feeling wash over us, feeling of all kinds. That way that poetry arrests you, that it makes you stop, I think is something that human beings can always use uh, and that's very, very necessary. Want a drug-free consciousness-shifting experience that only takes a minute and has good side effects? There's good reasons our brains love poetry. People have spoken it for generations, way before we wrote down stuff. Poetry is that thing that lifts your brain outside of everyday life and instantly transports your consciousness. I think of poems like little mental altoids that you can pop in your mind and let slowly unravel, stimulating and guiding your memories to reconfigure in heart-opening ways. But today our culture puts all its value on science. Those are the classes and jobs that pay, but it's our poetry that for hundreds of years has upset the establishment's apple cart that has brought us close together and created a sense of community and an experience of being alive that nothing else can in the same way. It's poets that have challenged us to think differently. Recently, our national attention gets inspired by the poetry shared at revolutions in Washington, whether it's MLK's I Have a Dream during the Human Rights March of 1963, Maya Angelou's On the Pulse of Morning, who followed Robert Frost as only the second poet ever to read at a president's inauguration, or this week's guest, Elizabeth Alexander, the only other poet to read following Bill's presidency when she read Praise Song for the Day at our country's first black president, Barack Obama's inauguration. In this conversation with Yale professor and Pulitzer Prize-nominated poet Elizabeth Alexander, we talk about the importance of poetry today as well as her recent profound and excruciating loss, which she writes about in The Light of the World. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. Sort of a longer, wacky question to start here, but there's been a pattern to the last few guests that I've had, and in some way, each have made sort of a strong case that the next fight that we as a society should take is on a social movement to take back the right to change our own consciousness. And that has come in the form of conversations about reintroducing psychedelics into our culture or shamans or dreams, or even efforts to increase our cultural health through activities that encourage communal bonding. And I guess as I was preparing for our chat, it struck me that poetry sort of falls into this category. It can have that same mind-altering effect as a drug trip, at least for me. And 
Um, it too has kind of been seen as this marginal anti-establishment activity reserved for either, you know, pompous or angry street kids. But I'd, I'm wondering, would you categorize poetry as a consciousness-altering activity? Well, for sure, absolutely. I mean, if you start with the premise that we live in language and that we understand other human beings in language, that we understand ourselves as social creature, at least in part in language, what does it mean when we take in or create language that is designed to be out of the ordinary? What does it mean when we express ourselves in language that is not necessarily designed to persuade, to be rhetorical, but rather to be, to let us feel, to be a soul print, to be a voice print, to be with each poem that we make, not self-consciously unique, but unique in the way that each human voice is unique. All of those things, all of those aspects of poetry that describe it at its very core, I think are mind-altering in the sense that whatever kind of doctrine we might be sitting in, whatever kind of surety we might be sitting in, I think that listening to or saying or writing a poem can certainly shift that. Hasn't the establishment always sort of hated poets if you go back through history? Because it seems like they, I don't know, upset the social apple cart or something. There'd be this standard of civilization and then poets would come in and uh, put some sort of I don't know, almost like a, uh, a manifesto or an opening to the spirit that caused a little bit of social unrest. Well, that's there are a lot of different establishments. And so I guess that any language that's not official, any language that is not designed in order to carry messages forward, I think can be destabilizing. But I think that to the open mind, it can also be tremendously reinforcing because I think that the other great experience that people find when they exchange poems is that of resonance, hmm. that of feeling less alone, right. that of having an echo with another soul, that of feeling like they want to go back and read or hear the poem again. So I think that actually, the real truth is that poetry builds community in that way, and it builds community with people who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as being politically affiliated. Yeah, I did some research about the popularity of poetry. It had been a while since I really looked anything like that up. I know I sometimes turn to my own books of poetry and pull one out and flip through some pages and pop one into my brain like an Altoid, but... I wanted to see <laughs> how popular it, it still was. And I found some stats from the Washington Post that said that since 92, since 1992, about 17% of the population read a poem about maybe once a year. And that activity has plummeted to about 6% and continues to drop. And there were some comparisons to the same I don't know, exclusivity and relevancy struggles as opera. But when you look at those stats, when you think about those stats, are you worried about the future of poetry? No. You know, here's why I'm not worried at all about the future of poetry. Several reasons. One is that poetry has been around in every culture throughout human history. <laughs> right. What else can we say that about? It will not die. It will never die. It will always be something that human beings need. Completely certain about that. 
deep human history shows us that. People come together and sing their songs. They tell their individual stories. They tell the stories of their tribe. They make song. So poetry is here to stay. I, I'm interested in the, the measurability of who reads it. And I wonder, it's a real question. I mean, I wonder, how do you measure that? That's a good question. You know, I, I actually, I think ultimately it can't fully be measured because one thing that I do know as a practicing poet for so many decades is that what makes a poetry reader? Does it mean that they buy a collection of poetry? Does it mean that they read a poem on the bus? Does it mean that they learn, you know, hip hop songs and say them to their friends? Does it mean that they go to some of the many, many online resources where you can read poems, but you're also watching poems. Does it mean that they're given a handout in a class? I think that there are so many different ways, more and more even as you know our digital lives expand, that people encounter poetry in meaningful ways. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't I, I'm interested that someone thought carefully about how to measure it, but I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. And like, let's say it is 6%. Let's say we know absolutely for sure that all human beings, 6% read poetry. Well, that's still actually a lot of people when you think about what we know about the multiplicative effects of how poetry lives in the world. Um, so I don't really think there's anything to worry about. Um, I, I think that also I, I would add that in so many cultural contexts, not just outside of the United States, um, Poetry is something that is encountered from human beings speaking to each other. Um, and so um, I would, would, would also think about how we factor that under our definition of reading. So speaking to the people who may not take the time to read poetry, why should they? Why does it need to be part of their lives? Why does the world need poetry? So many reasons. Um, I think that the world needs poetry because... The world needs anything that allows us to pause for a moment and take in feeling, sensation, sit in language, uh, twirl around an idea, uh, just simply pause and let feeling wash over us, feeling of all kinds. That way that poetry arrests you, that it makes you stop. I think is something that human beings can always use uh, and that's very, very necessary. I think also uh, the idea that there are so many possibilities in the shape of language and in the ways that we can speak to and reach to and be understood by each other. If you think about the number of conversations uh, wherein uh, people speak past each other or when you say, you know, could you say that another way? I didn't quite get that. I don't understand or where people just kind of log off and don't understand and, 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 and remain in their not understanding. Um, I think the way that poetry, you know, kind of torques you into listening a new way is something that is important unto itself and also something that has um, wonderful ripple effect. When I walk to my bookshelf and I pull out a volume of poems, and as I mentioned, I'll just flip around to a different page and I'll read one. I really do think of them, back to the shaman idea earlier, they, they're almost like tiny little wedges that direct me to create this personal context that fill in the cavities that that poem has created. It has a power to really open up my brain in very immediate ways. And I saw some 
research also from, I guess it was the University of Exeter, that had studied poetry's effect on the brain. And I guess they found that poetry stimulates parts of the brain related to memory. And that made sense to me because that's what felt like was happening when Mm -hmm. I would read a poem. Well, that's very cool. And I think that um, if you think about also the way that poets, you know, not that, that we always are trying to use fancy words, but we are trying to use the exact right words. And we are trying to, uh, I think, use words that are precise and original and unusual. Um, And if you think about the way, and you can watch it in uh, babies and toddlers when they're learning language, the wonderful way when you say a word to a toddler and you can tell on their faces that it's the first time they've heard that word, word in their entire little lives, Uh, You see their faces changing, you see them stop, you see them wondering, you see them figuring out if they can figure it out or if they need to ask about it. It's a beautiful thing, actually. And so I think that that grown-ups, too, uh, to have that experience uh, of newness, space, discovery, opening, as you describe, is uh, a very, very wonderful aspect of of engaging with poetry. By the way, most of the times I've gone to poetry readings, and sometimes when I see it on television, I've noticed there's almost a consistency with the sing-song quality that the poets have when they're reading their poems. Have you noticed that pattern as well? Yeah, I think that, you know, that that really varies a lot depending on poets. I mean, when I think about the, you know, billions of poetry readings I've been to in my time, Um, And even with poets whose work I know very well, like, uh, let's say, Gwendolyn Brooks, and listening to recordings of her reading the same poem at different points in her life, uh, it it can vary a lot. So I don't think there's any one answer, but uh, but I think that um, there's a way in which whatever it means to be making song, not singing, but, you know, kind of capital S song, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be raising language uh, to the level that you're really aware that it lives in the body. You're really aware that it has, um, you know, the quality of music. Um, What does it mean to then let that in some way be reflected in your reading? Um, you, You know, I think that sometimes one of the things I enjoy about poetry readings is that I feel like the hard work is done. Writing the poem is hard. And if the poem is, you know, if I'm, if it's somewhat successful, then there's something beautiful about taking it back into your body and putting it out again and seeing, okay, there's structure, there's rhythm, there's music here. And so I almost don't have to worry about being performative. Yeah, so for me, my North Star of getting me interested in poetry was Mary Oliver. But who was that for you? What was the first poet that really compelled you to start to consume poetry? I think very early on, um, I read Walt Whitman, and I read T.S. Eliot, and I read E.E. Cummings. And I think there were others, but when I think about those three, I think about kind of the exaltation and expansiveness and excitement of Walt Whitman and his long, beautiful catalogs that sort of suggested to me that anything could live in a poem. I think that what I loved uh, and love in T.S. Eliot was the power of the image Mm. and that, you know, anything, you could pluck anything strange from the recesses of your brain 
and trust it and see how you could make it work. That that seemed very, very exciting to me. And then the economy of E.E. E. Cummings and the power of spaces, the elliptical power of E.E. E. Cummings. I think from him I learned very, very on, long, early on that in the spaces, in the blank spaces, um, there was tremendous weight and power in a poem, that it wasn't just about the words that were there, it was also about the negative space of the weight on the page. You were asked to write a poem for Obama's first inauguration. I can't imagine what that journey was like. So could you talk a little bit about what it was like from writing it to then standing on that stage in front of a, what, a couple billion people? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the experience of reading it out was so uh, surreal uh, and, and the audience was so unimaginable that I... Uh, that actually wasn't the nerve-wracking part. <laughs> the nerve-wracking part was writing this poem and thinking about, you know, the weight of the occasion and thinking about what it meant to represent my people, you know, American poets. I felt that I was very much uh, a representative of the tribe mm -hmm. in that moment. And what did it mean to be up there for this extraordinary moment in history to write something that would speak to without being heavy-handed um, the fact that you know change was happening and that so many people uh, believed that this change could happen and so many people came together to make something that many many folks including you know the whole generation of my parents um, never believed would happen um, that was the um, pressure um, that hung over the writing of the poem. But I tried to tell myself that what I was doing was something I'd done a million times. Mm. And that is, you know, put one word in front of the other and edit and shape and edit and shape and discard and edit and shape and just keep moving and let it be dreck and try to make it better and just keep moving. That making this poem had to be somewhat like what making a poem had always been like. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. So um, I, you know, got the assignment on December 18th, which I always remember because it was my beloved grandmother's birthday. Hmm. And uh, I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and drafted and drafted. And certainly one particular challenge was that most of the poems I um, write, people will encounter them on the page. And I knew that most people would encounter this as a spoken thing. So that was, you know, a particular challenge was to think about, you can't really second guess an audience. And again, you, you can't even get your head around an audience of billions. So why bother? I mean, there's nothing to figure out with that. You don't know who they are. They're everybody. So you can't try to, you know, anticipate what they want to hear. But what you can figure out a little bit is how do I write something that is in a common language in the sense that Adrian Rich wrote about the dream of a common language, you know, um, not a sort of like dumbing down or anything like that, but like what is common language and how do I find that was, I thought, the really interesting challenge of writing this poem. And what happened after you finished reading it at that moment and you stepped down and then all of a sudden the world starts to give you feedback? What happened? 
Oh, so many things happened. I mean, you know, the very first thing that happened was uh, then I sat back down next to my beloved father who has devoted so much of his life to the fight for uh, racial justice and gender justice and income justice and a better, fairer life for people. Uh, and that's the first thing that happened was, you know, I got to think about that. And then the next thing that happened was I got to listen to President Obama, like, deliver his inaugural speech and be the president. Mm. So, I mean, like, I'm just slowing it down because it was it was that uh, amazing. It was that, you know, momentous. Uh, and I then, because my work was done, was able to look out and, again, think about, like, all of these people gathered peacefully for this moment and believing in the possibility of this moment. I mean, that's really, really what was um, what was important. Um, you know, then a lot of swirl afterwards, a lot of, you know, a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts. And I think that for me, the biggest thing was the opportunity to do a little bit of duty as uh, a, a, something of a, an ambassador for poetry for a little while because I got, you know, I heard from lots of people, got lots of letters and emails and invitations. And when I would go places, I would do what I've always done, but just to much smaller audiences, which is read poems, help people write poems, talk about the importance of poetry, talk about the importance of um, African-American culture at the center of understanding American culture. So it felt wonderful to be able to um, you know, the old folks would always tell us to be prepared and be ready because you never know when you're going to have an opportunity to do something on a little bit of a, a bigger um, platform. So just be prepared. And so I felt that, you know, my education and my work and um, that my diligence uh, and uh, my community uh, had me ready to take some things that don't often get paid a lot of attention and do a little good with them. I want to talk about your recent book, The Light of the World, and that's about the relationship with you and your husband. So where did the two of you guys meet? We met in New Haven, Connecticut, um, and uh, I, uh, we met sort of by magic and circumstance. Uh, I was living in Chicago at the time, but came to New Haven to uh, put up a play for a semester at the Yale Drama School. And at the time, he was a painter and, he, and also was a chef and restaurateur, along with his brothers. And uh, my play went up and they gave us an opening night party. And a few weeks later, I was meeting a friend at a cafe and my friend didn't appear, but this lovely human being uh, sort of did appear and said to me very quietly, uh, I loved your play, I wonder if we could talk about it. And though I was returning to Chicago in a few days time, we nonetheless, uh, or at least that was my that was plan A. <laughs> um, we nonetheless um, just started talking, and uh, and we didn't stop. So that was where my life turned. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how the book came to be and what happened right after your husband's fiftieth birthday? Well, so um, we had uh, sixteen years together, and we you know married very quickly. Uh, I moved from Chicago. We had two children in short order, a year apart, um, and we made a, a, a life together of uh, community, family, friends, creativity, food. I made poems. I, you know, taught at Yale. You know, 
built African American studies with my colleagues there. He uh, devoted his life then to painting after many years in restaurants, made, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beautiful, beautiful paintings. And uh, right after his 50th birthday, very unexpectedly out of the blue, he uh, had cardiac arrest in our home and he died. And uh, this was not, he had not been unwell uh, and uh, this was completely out of the blue. So my memoir, The Light of the World, was something that I started to write a few months afterwards. My children were 12 and 13, uh, really trying to uh, be alive. Uh, I knew I would stay alive because I had my children, but to be alive and know what I was feeling and what we were living through and what was happening in the way that for me um, only writing uh, can help me really know what I'm in the midst of. I never imagined I would write a memoir. I never um, imagined that at my stage of life I would want to share my life in that way. I preferred the more oblique way of sharing myself through poetry. Um, but uh, the circumstances of life really called out that book and it became uh, a, a, a work that I'm prouder of than anything I've ever written. We had a guest on the show who went through uh, a sudden loss of a spouse like that, and he lost his wife and was talking about how he still was very much surrounded by traces of her. Is that still the case for you? Are you still very much surrounded by his art and by the little pieces of him? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think that even if there weren't the objects that are sort of talismans and reminders, and, you know, he was a very great painter, and so I feel very lucky to live amongst those paintings and photographs. Um, but um, I think there's a way that um, the people that we've really taken deeply into our souls and bodies, I mean, they really never leave us. <laughs> the most obvious, uh, more than a reminder, embodiment of that is our children, um, but actually, it's interesting. The children, to me, are very much themselves. And so, though they sometimes make me think of their father, um, I don't feel them kind of ghosted by that. And I feel that also sometimes it can be a bit of a weight um, for someone always to be told that they remind someone else of a, a person who passed away. Um, <clears throat> I think that sometimes that means that we're not seeing the person in front of us as clearly as we might. But... That said, um, there doesn't a, a day pass that I don't say to myself many times or say with my kids, you know, that was, that was a daddy moment. Daddy would have thought that was funny. What do you think he would have said? Doesn't that remind you of him? Remember when he used to? Or that I don't do something, you know, every time I, I cook dinner, I, I am cooking dinner with some, he was an amazing cook, um, and uh, with something I've learned from him. So I'll think about it. You know, there, there would be, there's too much to lose. Hmm. Are there unexpected places that you turn to during that time and current time of grief? You know what I think is beautiful about grief and interesting about grief and loss is that you never know who your partners are going to be moving through the process because some people are very good at it and good at it at particular points in their life and some people 
are not good at it, even if they may be wonderful people and people that you love very, very much. So um, I found in beautiful ways there were a few, um, you know, not inner circle friendships that became inner circle friendships because those people were so present and able to be wonderful, deep friends to us and wonderful people who were able to take care of us in particular ways that we'd never known before. And so to me, and, 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 and you know, strangers who would do kind things or strangers who would come with beautiful memories of uh, Fikre, my husband. So those were just gifts, um, real, real gifts. Um, and then I think, you know, sometimes there are disappointments, um, but I, I have a lot of empathy for that as well, because I think that there are very complicated reasons that we are or aren't able to be helpful in a time of such extreme sorrow. Um, you know, my husband was truly a beloved human being, and we lived in a relatively small community. We'd been there for a long time. He'd been there for a very, very long time. And we had children. And so in school communities, when someone suddenly loses a parent, it really reverberates in that community in a very, very heavy way. So I think that um, I have a lot of empathy that, that, that there were many people who were just feeling so much sorrow of their own. And what would you say to those who are facing grief, maybe in that community, now that you're on this side of it, how would you help them and be one of those sources for them that maybe is different now that you've been through this? Well, I think, uh, I hope, I hope that the book is helpful to people. Um, I think that maybe, you know, all of that's in the book in the sense that I would never, ever, 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 ever be prescriptive, um, especially with people I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm actually really super uncomfortable with that. I, I don't think that that's appropriate. Um, but I think that um, I've heard so much from people who, from the book, um, have felt that it was wonderful to read that along with a story of profound loss was a story of profound love. And that perhaps for themselves, you know, realizing that in the loss is also an opportunity to, you know, memorialize the people that we've loved. And that in loss is also as painful as it is, as unthinkable as it is, especially for children. There's an opportunity for tremendous, tremendous growth and connection to other people. So once the, you know, kind of the worst thing imaginable has happened, then you know, I feel like we stay alive. We keep living. We are among the living. So we just keep walking forward. How do you think about love in your life, having lost the person that you love the most so dearly? I mean, it, has it changed? Do you, do you think of just the entire idea of love differently? I think that um, one thing that I've come to see very, very sharply is that romantic love between two people is a magical, 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 magical thing. And it's a power and it's a life force and it's a supernova of human energy. But I think that unless it radiates outward to larger circles of community, then it's a hoarded resource. So I think that any uh, 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 profound love that brought me together with Fikre uh, is love that was only meaningful because it multiplied and because we sent it back out again. 
So it starts with children, and then it's extended family, and then it's the school community or the neighborhood community or the block community or the town community or the idea community or, or the, the, the diasporic community we were in because he uh, came from East Africa, so, you know, our world was a, a big one. Um, and I think that all, all the beauty and positivity that we shared it's a horrible thing only to keep it to yourself. Um, so I think there's the part that's private and the part that you enjoy. But what I've really learned about love is how much it is a, a life force that needs to radiate outward, even from uh, a couple. I'd love to shift for a little bit here, too. I also saw that you wrote a poem upon Muhammad Ali's passing. Is that right? I wrote it long before he passed. Oh, I wrote it um, about uh, 20 years before he passed, but had the opportunity to um, share it on Democracy Now! And, and some other places when he passed away. It's an amazing poem. Thank you. I didn't know that you wrote it before he, but it sounds like a long time before he passed away. Yeah, I, um, I, uh, I think he, you know, was an extraordinary, extraordinary figure. And I think the combination of... Um, you know, a, a growing political consciousness. I think that that's a really, really super interesting thing about him, that he evolved in front of our eyes as a political person. He grew as he became more exposed. Uh, when, as the old saying goes, you know, when you when you knew better, you did better, right? So as he learned, um, his ideas got, you know, bigger and wiser. Um, that he was so astonishingly physically elegant and beautiful, and that as a black man, he proclaimed that beauty uh, in a society that so often reviles um, black male bodies. Um, I just was very, very, very blown away when uh, I learned more about him looking at, it, it was at a period in the 1980s when they started showing more of his uh, early fights uh, on uh, the wide world of sports. And uh, that was where my own Ali obsession began. Do you think of your own work as political? Um, I think of my own work as political in the sense that um, it exists in a larger context. It exists in a, you know, historical context. I'm really interested in history. I'm interested in community. Uh, I'm interested in how people make change. I'm interested in how, um, people think about, you know, making the world a better place. But, 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 so when you say my work, I mean, there's a lot of pieces to it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I would, you know, there are the poems, there's the memoir, there's critical writing about mostly African-American culture, there's teaching, there's trying to build an academic field of African-American studies, which that's very, very political work, trying to make space for those ideas in the academy. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I, I hope that my work is useful, um, for sure. But I think that um, all of those different strands of the work have um, different sets of tools. And when I'm writing, and particularly when I'm writing poetry, it starts with the word, and it doesn't start out with intent. Um, I would act differently with another one of my tools if I wanted to change something. But I also believe that, you know, poems out there in the world move in mysterious ways. Uh, so um, I'm happy to see when they are influential. 
And I saw that you have recently been, what, appointed to the board for the Pulitzer Prize. Is that right? Yes. What's that like being able to work at that level across so many different amazing contributions to to culture? Well, it's the, I haven't started the work yet, but I mean, it's quite an honor. And, um, and what it does is, is it really amplifies work that I've been doing for decades, which is trying to think at any level, you know, if it, it can be a community poetry prize for $5 and a ham. <laughs> um, but um, whenever things, I think that there are tremendously important messages that go out when we award when we give someone a gold star, when we say you win this prize. And I think having different perspectives on um, the juries and committees that um, choose who's going to get to go to the artist colony, who's going to get the prize, you know, deciding who's going to be read on the common syllabus, you know, really trying to stretch and open up to to the amazing, amazing variety of voices out there. There is so much excellence out there. Um, and uh, some of these spaces have been very exclusionary. And so, you know, to continue, so I've, I've, I've always tried to exercise judgment in that way wherever I could. And this just feels like a real pinnacle of that. And I think what's exciting too is that it's not just you know, poetry, it's also theater and music and journalism. And uh, so I'm going to learn a lot from really, really smart colleagues. I'm excited. Elizabeth Alexander, thank you so much for putting your voice into the world and for being on Grow Big Always. Well, thank you very much. I can't wait to, um, to hear it. A huge thank you to the incredible poet, Elizabeth Alexander, for those of you who have not visited growbigalways.com, our website, be sure to do that and check out all the amazing episodes with a wide range of truly legendary people sharing their irregular paths to creating breakthroughs that change our own points of view and help us grow. And for those of you who have not yet been to the website, you'll notice while you're there, on the bottom of every page is an easy way to sign up for our weekly alert, which will just tell you who's coming up next, remind you that there's a new show, and keep you in the loop. For those of you sharing the show, telling your friends about it, and for listening, a huge thank you. <laughs>